This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations presented by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. In solidarity with Black Lives Matter and Amplify Melanated Voices, this week we are highlighting four conversations from our archives that feature Black thinkers, activists, and writers. Starting Thursday, June 4th through Sunday, June 7th, we are re-releasing conversations with Ijeoma Aluo, Damon Young, Joy DeGruy, and Angela Davis. We hope that listening to these episodes provides resources and connection in these transformative times. You can find all four episodes and more on the recommended page at ciispod.com or by subscribing to this podcast. Thank you for listening, and we wish you well. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for CIIS for the invitation. Thank you, David. Thank you for agreeing to uh, to be here to indulge with my bullshit. So, so thank you, <laughs> thank you for that. I, I'm I'm so honored and humbled. Thank you. Yeah. So we're here to talk about uh, your amazing debut no- memoir, uh, which I found to be just incredibly hilarious. Uh, very nuanced, uh, very vulnerable. Um, and the introduction to that book uh, is, a, is an essay, an introduction that you wrote, Living While Black is an Extreme Sport. So I'm interested in starting there and, and kind of unpacking that idea and why it resonates. It's probably one of the most uh, sound bit portions of your <laughs> memoir. And so I'm curious about why that resonates and why it resonated for you. Okay, so I got to tell the story of that, of that intro. And it starts off with... Um, so every year, New Year's Day, um, a group of people gather together, like 200 people, and get butt naked and dive into the Monongahela River. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and now Pittsburgh ain't, you know, we're not Antarctica, but it gets pretty cold. So they're basically jumping butt ass taken into an Appalachian slush puppy. And without even telling you the racial composition, <laughs> of the people who do this. I, I know that everyone has an image in their head of who, okay, who these niggas are. Um, and, and so the book starts off with that. And just the idea that you see these like different sorts of artificial kamikaze that, um, that white people sometimes create. The polar bear club, bungee jumping, um, you know, splunking into wells and, you know, sparring with sharks and just all this, you know, and black people do that shit too. But, you know, um, some, some black people do that shit too. And it's like, I don't feel the same compulsion to do that because just living while black is enough to get that flight or flight going, to get that <laughs> adrenaline going. Just driving and having a cop, that's exciting. I mean, that that gets my, you know, that gets all that adrenaline. I mean, it's scary as fuck, but it's also like, holy shit, I feel alive right now. Um, you know, walking into Macy's or walking, not, not Macy's, maybe Barney's and, um, you know, having people ask you, you know, you need some help. I mean, that is exciting. And so because of that excitement, there just isn't as much of a need to define ways to like create like this artificial closeness to death because again just walking out the house just existing while black 
you're already, you know, you're already like just right there. And the whole memoir kind of explores yeah. your life mm-hmm. through that lens of living very close to to death, but also I think a lot of rebirth in that too. And I joked with you earlier, I was like, it was like witnessing a bunch of your social deaths. He's <laughs> <laughs> like very humiliating, but also I think uh, growth moments mm-hmm. that happened throughout the work. And I thought that that was, that was beautiful um, and also very vulnerable. So what about vulnerability plays very well with this idea of blackness as it relates to death, as it relates to rebirth? What does vulnerability do there? Well, so, you know, we talked earlier on the phone about how, I guess, transparent and vulnerable the book is, where I I share a lot of things that are very unflattering, that um, are like these really deep self-consciousnesses, anxieties, neuroses, whatever, and... I just figured, you know, if I'm if I'm gonna write a memoir, then I need to go there. Like this, I'm not Black Panther. Like this isn't a superhero origin story. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is a a story about you know this nigga from Pittsburgh who's seen some shit, been through some shit, and is telling his story, telling his story about his people, telling his story about the language that he uses and why he uses it, um, telling his story about his city, um, and also telling larger stories about. I guess about Black America, about white supremacy, about patriarchy, about capitalism, whatever, and um, and so the vulnerability is necessary because that gives the story its humanity. You know, not everyone can relate to being forty-year-old ex-college ball player from Pittsburgh with an egghead. You know, that's all over. So not everyone can relate to that, but everyone has been scared. Everyone has had doubt. Everyone has um, or still has things that they're very self-conscious about. And um, one of the, I guess, one of the byproducts of writing this book, I think, which is allowing people to see, particularly people who are going through or, or having those sorts of feelings that their experience isn't singular. That um, and I and I know that the world, the country, teaches us that black people are like this way, not exposed to experience this stuff. Like even when you think about some of the sort of humor, like the very like neurotic um, humor that is in that in the book, the the first associations are people like Jerry Seinfeld, Woody Allen, David Sedaris, you know, these upper middle class, usually white, usually men. And I feel like if anything, we're the ones who deal with the most neuroses because we're the ones who deal with the most stress. So if anything, we're the ones who have the most content and comedy to mine from that experience, even though that sort of comedy and that sort of work isn't naturally associated with us. What doesn't kill you makes you blacker. Is that a tragedy or a comedy? <laughs> um, what do you think? I mean, the the tr- the truest is a. Tr- I mean, it is a tragedy until you, someone comes along and alchemizes it. I think into a, a comedy, but but I I felt I left reading the book feeling all those things and not knowing where I should really land. Mm-hmm. So I, I asked that question back to you. Uh, oh, we're just going to go back and forth. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just for that, that 
that was that was very clever. It's all those things. Yeah, I um, we were just talking before you know um, before we came here. We got a drink because that's that's what niggas do before we get in front of people, <laughs> and um, comedy is tragedy plus time, and um, and so I, I guess whether or not it's comedy or tragedy depends on when depends on my perspective. And depends on when I'm assessing a situation, assessing a circumstance. Like there's a passage in the or the second the second chapter of the book where I talk about being ripped on, which is a Pittsburgh area slang for like roasting or playing the dozens or whatever. And that was a very tough experience for me. Then it was tragic. But now I look back on it and I look back at it with, you know, with humor because it's just some of the things that I did or didn't do in the way I reacted, it's funny as fuck to me, <laughs> right, to me right now yeah. as a 40 year old, but as a 15 year old, it was pretty, um, you know, it was pretty difficult. Yeah. And it's a lot of those social interactions that you're definitely working with, but it's also these larger social constructs. Mm -hmm. So um, economic insecurity is something that comes up a lot in the work. Uh, both as it relates to your family, your father and your mother, um, but also as it relates in this, one could argue, passed down to, to you, um, but also as a larger uh, inkling of the things that we're working with as black folks, who I think in a couple of years we're scheduled to have 0% wealth or nationally. So just talk about economic insecurity and how that plays into <laughs> how you're thinking about things and how you're able to construct yourself in that world. Yeah, I mean, the, the last, last three or four years have been have been very good. I'm not. I'm not even going to pretend they haven't been um, economically, financially, whatever, for me. You know, I don't. I don't have Oprah money now. I don't. <laughs> don't even have Stedman or Gail money. But um, <laughs> but I do have like. I have upcharge money. Like upcharge money. Upcharge money. So like if that? I um, if I get a burger and it comes with fries, <laughs> and instead of fries, I want to get the salad. Go ahead and get that fucking salad. Two fifty, <laughs> you know, and may, and maybe throw some salmon on that on on that motherfucker too. So I have I have salmon upcharge money right now, where I don't I don't blink an eye about about salmon or shrimp if it's on a salad. Um, but again, that's a new that's a new circumstance for me. And the book talks about it and um, just how just how that. Um, economic insecurity kind of dictated many of the decisions that I made, um, and also how I felt about myself. Um, and and even 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 now, I still have. I call it in the book P PTBD, post traumatic brokenness disorder. That's what I knew you were gonna <laughs> yeah. Where um, okay, so back in two. <laughs> <laughs> Back in two thousand and two thousand and twelve, I was working for a pub, I was working for a publication who shall not be named right now, and they were late with they were a couple months late with uh with some pay. Um, you could probably Google who I'm talking about if you if you or read the book. Yeah. <laughs> um, and when something like that happens, it just starts like this this series of events where okay, so. I um I have these bills and some bills are more immediate. Like okay, I need my phone to be on, so I need to pay that bill. I need my cable because I need the internet, so I need that. I need my car insurance 
because if I get stopped and I don't have insurance, then my car's getting towed. I need that. But maybe I can be late with a car payment because they're not they're not going they're they're going to call you, they're going to email you, but they're not going to come and get your car after a month late payment. But so that month stressed into three months, and my car got repossessed, and I end up getting it back. Um, I, I borrowed some money from some friends and I actually lied to them and told them that um, that my car was taken by the city because of unpaid parking tickets. Because to me, that was less shameful than the truth. And so I got it back. But still today, if I'm in my bedroom, laying in bed, on you know, sitting on the couch in my living room, and you hear that really distinct beep, beep, <laughs> beep, of like a large truck backing up in the street, yeah. my anxiety, my fight or flight spikes because... It, it triggers a part of me that still thinks, okay, they're coming to get my car again. And um, and my car is paid for <laughs> now. And it's in a garage, too. So, I mean, <laughs> so it'd be, it would, you know, a lot would have to happen for that to happen now. But that doesn't, that doesn't stop. That doesn't prevent the trigger. Yeah. And that, that, you know, post-traumatic brokenness disorder, that just is a perpetual state of being. And I don't think... I don't think I'm, I think I'm always going to feel that, or at least a remnant of that. And I honestly don't want it to go away. Why? I, you know, I don't want to be one of the niggas that has a nigga wake up call and for, and, and forgets who they are, forgets how tenuous, the tenuousness of income, of wealth, of money, of status of all that for black people in America and get so comfortable that, you know, Thanos comes and snaps his fingers and it's all gone. And, and the thing is, you know, and it, it is funny. I, I laugh at that, but it's, that shit can happen. I mean, in the book, there's a passage where I liken it to, okay. So people who maybe don't have as much money or broke or, working class or poor or whatever, they live on a coast, right on the coastline. And so if a, like a tsunami hits, they're the, first, they're the ones who get wiped out immediately. And I think that having money, having a degree, having like a nice car, having a nice salary, having a title, having a business card, um, have a resume, all, all that bullshit, um, makes us think sometimes we're up on a mountain, you know, or, or that we're like miles away from the coast. But we're, we're just like a couple miles further inland. So if that tsunami is strong enough, it's going to get us too. Even though we believe that sometimes that, yeah, we're immune. We're, nah. And so that feeling, I think it just keeps me grounded and keeps me centered um, it has, it definitely has its negative byproducts because it makes me do ridiculous shit like buy $800 sneakers because I feel like the money's going to go away and I need to spend it. Like my, my wife jokes that I have like a hole in my pocket that as soon as I get money, I just spend it because I just, and I, and I know that that is not a good thing. That is very like self-destructive. Um, but 
I prefer to work through and deal with that negative byproduct of it than to just not have that compulsion, not have that 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 reminder of the tediousness of 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 our existence really here. As black people, as though. black people, yeah. Because we're always kind of on that line. Which well, I, think I mean, you, we're never not. We're never not on that line. We're never not on the coast. We're never not on the coast. We're never not. You know, yeah. We're it, we're we're this one yeah. one storm away from everything being wiped out. And even as you're kind of, you know, beautifully getting vulnerable with us, which I so appreciate. I I, I come back to that question of is it a tragedy or is it a comedy and I think you play that line very beautifully in the work and also just as in yourself as a um as a a being in this place but you you do play with that idea of like the the spectacle of being so close to being almost wiped out can also be very tragic but also we have you know there's last I feel like it's and I feel like it's liberating in a way I mean it's not and Liberation doesn't necessarily mean like a like a like a complete freedom in terms of just you know just not having to think about a thing, not having to have a certain weight. I think the liberation just comes in having to be nimble mm-hmm. and having to just extend and expand like you, your humanity in a way that that white people that people who 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 oppress and people who benefit from oppression don't have to do, don't just don't have the experience in the same way. Yeah. Like, I, I really believe that, you know, one of the best, probably the best parts, the best part of being black in America is that it forces you to be, it forces you to to, to extend your, your humanity, to, to find community and to savor it, to even entertain a concept of forgiveness in a way that, they don't have to it, it makes you just naturally empathetic i mean all these like great and beautiful and awful and messy and unwieldy things about being human we get to experience them you know and and yes you know the oppression sucks the bias sucks man eggs on sandwiches that you didn't <laughs> ask for sucks sometimes um <laughs> You know all of that, but um, I wouldn't trade it. Even as I'm talking about, you know, all of the, you know, the tragedy or whatever in the comedy, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Because at the at the end of the day, we survived the end of the world, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that's the comedy uh-huh. of yeah, it. Yeah, I've seen The Walking Dead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, Rick's long gone, so no. <laughs> Absolutely. So I just wanted to take a step um, back and. And also talk about all of the inner generations that you conjure in this work, um, your father, um, but also your mother. And um, I think she is such a, a pillar through this work and also is reflected not only in the ways that you see yourself, but also in the ways that you interact with other black women. Um, and so what did it mean to conjure your mom in this work? Um, um, well, writing about both of my parents was um was necessary because um they were the most important people in my life my 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 greatest teachers my my best friends also um you know the ones that encouraged me that supported me that you know all all, all the things that that great parents are supposed to do 
they did them and they did them despite you know um that economic insecurity being a constant like it it never like my mom it's been six years since she she never got past that like she never she always experienced that um and you know i think about my dad and you know my dad got me into writing um when i was in seventh or eighth grade you know i'd have these take-home essays in english class or social studies and um He'd help me with them, and then I would get it. He would get A's on the exam. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't getting an A's. They, he was getting the A's, <laughs> and you know, he would teach me words like conniption and behoove, and I would try to use them at recess. <laughs> you know, <laughs> behoove you to pass me the ball. It's like, no, what, what, the, what, the, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> Not picking you on my team anymore. Um, and. And, you know, dad taught me how to hoop, introduced me to basketball. Um, when I was uh, the Harlem Globetrotters come to Pittsburgh, like, every year around my birthday. Um, so, like, around between, like, December 29th and, and December 31st, they're, they're in Pittsburgh. And so I think on my sixth birthday, my dad, my, my birthday December 30th. And on my sixth birthday, my dad told me to see the Harlem Globetrotters. And I, that was it. That, that made me fall in love with basketball. Um and and so my dad is like my dude my dad's my nick like my best friend my nigga like that's like my my dude for real and writing about them was necessary because i wanted people to know them as i've known them but it was also you know particularly the chapter about my mom's death um was was probably the most difficult thing for me to write um, because because one it was hard for me to write and also because I knew my dad was going to read it and it um, it revealed some unflattering things about him and and that was hard for me and I still you know and I I've, I had his blessing and he he wants me to just tell my truth and he's so proud of me he's probably waiting for. A picture from this event to go on Facebook so he could share it with his um, 1,200 friends. Like that's he he's one of those people who shares everything that I do, even some of the shit that I'd rather he not share with like my aunts and my great aunts. And you know he's he's still sharing. You know. Oh, anyway. Um. Okay, so it's been six years since my mom died. Um, she, oh, it'll be six years in October. She, um, she had lung cancer. She was diagnosed a year before she died. And they gave her six months and she took those and then stole away six more. And, um, and, you know, finally passed a year later. And, and thinking about my mom, thinking about my dad and thinking about my mom uh, specifically, Just think about that, those years before she was diagnosed, when she would complain about headaches and stomach aches and back pain. 
And my mom was always like this really this like sweet woman who, you know, loved making French toast and and listening to Pat Metheny and Tina Turner and wanted to be Michelle Obama when she grew up. And and how like like the pain that was just like emanating from her just it was like this sentient object that you could you could feel it in a room. And she would go to the doctor with complaints about this pain and they tell her to take some Advil, take less Advil, drink less pop, get more exercise, which, you know, those are good pieces of advice, you know, objectively speaking, but I wonder, just wonder if her pain would register differently. If instead of this working class black woman, if she was a white woman. And if her pain would register differently, if the doctors would have done something differently with her treatment or would have found it earlier. And this belief exists with the larger context of also knowing that even today that, you know, doctors still believe that black people, black women have like the supernatural tolerance for pain. Like there was a study I just read like last year about med students. These aren't like doctors who have been doctors for, for years, but like people who are entering the medical profession who are fucking millennials who still believe that, you know, black people can tolerate pain at a different level than white people can. And even, you know, thinking about like, like Serena Williams, who, you know, as you know, as many of us know, almost died after she had her child because um, she's in the maternity ward or whatever. And um, she's not feeling right. And she has this history of blood clots or, you know, um, or whatever. And she's telling the nurses or whoever, like, yo, something's wrong with me. I don't feel right. Something. I know something's wrong with me, and they weren't paying attention to her. And this back and forth continued for, for what a day, two days, however long it was, and then they finally did whatever test they needed to. You know, did whatever test they needed to take, and then discovered, yeah, if they would have let her home, they would let her go home. They would discharge her, and then she would have died. And this is Serena fucking Williams. You know, someone with all the someone with all of the money, all the status, all the power, someone who who has that money, that status, that power because they know their body. I mean, her body is a is an economy. There are people who get a salary based off of maintaining her. There are people who are on vacation. <laughs> right now because of their full-time job of maintaining Serena Williams's body. That's how important it is to her. That's how and she still wasn't trusted. So 
if that's the case with her, you know, what, what chance does my mom have? My wife, my daughter. And I am ninety nine point nine 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 percent sure that things would have been different. They would have treated her differently if um you know if 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 she wasn't a black woman. I, I believe this. I have evidence of this happening. I have like peer-reviewed studies that I've read. But I'm not sure. Can I say without a shadow of a doubt that things would definitely 100% be different? No, I can't. I, I, I can't. No one can. And that that this that look that tiny bit of space between the belief and the reality, whatever you believe the reality to be, that's where that anxiety just really just like fucks with you. Because you you can never quite be sure. Like it is this is this thing happening? because I'm black or is this thing just happening and that that little tiny even though you're you're so sure but you're not certain that that tiny bit of uncertainty that's what fucks with you and that's what if you if we allow it to can drive you crazy so I I gave that context about my mom because I was talking about my dad and um, and how writing about my mom was difficult because of some of the things I revealed about him, about us, whatever. And, and so fast forward, my wedding, I got married in 2014. This was, um, I think, eight months after my mom passed. Wedding was great. I mean, we had like a brunch buffet wedding because we're, I guess we're, you know, fake bougie niggas and we (laughs) (laughs) we wanted to have a brunch buffet with like seafood and pancakes and shit. Pancakes. Waffles and crab cakes. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I mean, it was it was a good time. I mean, I'm not I'm not going front. And I know people are getting, oh, damn, that. That's a good idea. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, And so I, um, I just remember that day, and remember all the pictures that we took, and all just how much fun we had, and just really just wanting to almost like Photoshop my mom into all those memories and all those pictures. And but the thing is. When she passed, I received, um, my dad received an insurance settlement. And he gave me $7,500 from that settlement. 
and I use part of that money to finish paying for the engagement ring I already put a down payment on. And I use another part of that money to put a down payment on the venue for the wedding. And so what what fucks with me even more is like wondering, well, I wanted my mom to be there, but I wouldn't have been able to afford any of this shit if she were still here then. And, you know, the, the book, you know, that's one of the, I guess, one of the darker, you know, more sober parts of the book. And um, I included that part about my mom, about my dad, about my parents, just, I guess, to put like a, a, a human, also to put a human face on these anxieties, these, these neuroses, these self-consciousnesses and and how and what America can do. Because, um, you know, the title of that chapter is Living While Black Killed My Mom. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, I, and I still believe that. And what I think is so, first just thank you, Damon, for just sharing all that you just shared. Um, and I think it something that was very striking in the book too is how the constructs of America's uh, understanding of blackness often then translates to our as black people understanding of each other so even in the conversation about uh, your mother is also uh, pushing us to have an awakening about how we also contribute and 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 play a role in that as Mm. just people loving and trying to relate to other black people trying to love and relate to other black Mm. people Um, I don't know if you want to talk about any of that but that it also seemed to be right up against the kind of bigger question structurally about black women and also our ability to care for one well, another. You know, I, again, I, I keep hinting at this, but, you know, I talk about my dad and, you know, my dad was so vital, excuse me, to my experience to, again, t- again teaching me how to write, teaching me conniption, um, teaching me mm-hmm. how to hoop, you know, being like, you know, I, I, I have a soft spot for niggas like uh, LeVar Ball, who are so everybody's daddy i I, I know i i i I don't i don't i don't fuck with him on like a personal level but i have a soft spot for the black basketball dad and the dad who's out there drilling with their son taking them to all the aau games you know sometimes being the only other black face in the crowd being like your your son's drill instructor dietitian um bodyguard jitney um uber you know um you know one-on-one opponent hype man financier i mean all of these different roles that 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 sort of you know parent can can have and he was all that um but i also remember that this was a time when he was um he was unemployed for for a long stretch of time and then when he got it, he, he would have like this real tenuous employment every every once in a while and it wouldn't last. And so I think about that and I, I come back to my mom and my mom was a smoker for 30 years. And I asked myself and I asked the book if 
the stress from existing as our family's primary income for that long compelled her to smoke for that long, compelled her to find ways to, you know, to self-medicate. And so all of these great experiences with my dad and memories and also watching his games, he used to hoop too. You know, they exist in concert with, you know, my mom's experience. Like they're not, they're not these two separate things. And my mom, what she was doing in the house allowed all that stuff to happen outside the house. But what she was doing in the house might have also killed her, too. As a way of just honoring my next and and question to, to move us is um you know what do we owe black women knowing all of that we know <laughs> hearing your personal experience um, what do we owe black women I, I I would say just transparency honesty vulnerability um support obviously amplification is that a word amplification mm-hmm. okay amplification yeah um empathy um everything <laughs> you know um The book is also a um, an indictment, an interrogation, an examination of like of masculinity, talks of masculinity, patriarchy, all all that stuff. And I just I, I think that you know it's, those for some people are very like high minded concepts. Like you hear like, and, and I know that some men hear the term toxic masculinity and just assume that that means that masculinity is toxic naturally, inherently. And what I what I hope that people take from, from the book and take from other pieces of, of literature, other pieces of art out there, other conversations, you know, um, with 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 us with black women just pay attention and listen when women say, you know what, this thing is causing harm. That's all. And then the first step is listening. And then the second the second part is getting to a place where you do not want to be a person who causes harm. And then after that is, okay, I want to be a person who reduces it. But getting to that place where you, where you actually listen and believe, that um, I think a lot of us are stuck there. Um, and again, that's I think empathy was the last thing I said, but that 
there's an empathy void there. Uh, and it's, you know, I've written about this on VSB and it, it um, I hate to always make the comparison between like white people and racism and black people and interracial misogyny or sexism, whatever, but it really does remind me of sometimes when we talk about race, talk about racism, talk about microaggressions and 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 their effect on us. And sometimes you'll hear these responses from white people and it's like, you know, are, are you really sure that happened? Where are the statistics? Where's the proof? This is all in your head. You know, things are things are better today than they were 50 years ago. I thought we were over racism and race and Don Lemon and, and everything. Stop. And um, <laughs> my, my bad, Don Lemon. Actually, he's, Don, Don is, he's made some strides. You know, yeah, he definitely, that doesn't have to be in the podcast. You could, you could keep that out. Because he, he has definitely made some strides. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to say that about him because he's, he's, he's a good dude. He's trying, he's trying, he's trying. That's the thing. He's, he's, he's making an effort. And um, as we all are, and that's really all you can ask is, is the effort. So, so anyway, white people, racism, not believing us. And sometimes when you hear black women talk about the things that are really affecting and harming them, they're met with like the same sort of resistance. It's even sometimes the same language, like the exact same sort of gaslighting, the exact same sort of dismissiveness. And I just, I, I guess to answer your question, I, I think that at the, at the very least, we owe black women an ear to actually like listen and just kind of remove ourselves and our egos and whatever from it and just, okay, you're saying this is happening and I, I want to hear what you have to say. And I believe you. I think so much of your work is about learning in public <laughs> and learning out loud yeah, and mean, learning in real time. <laughs> and we, we talked about that earlier where um, just the process of the difference between writing VSB and doing this, this book. Yeah, yeah, and with VSB, like everything up to this book, all the writing that I've done has been very public writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, where it's writing that was meant to be consumed by an audience immediately. Um, sometimes within like, like I'm put a period on the last sentence. I hit publish, and um, and you get feedback immediately. You get you know, you get responses. You get comments. You know, whatever. And so with this, it had to like sit for a while. Um, I mean, it the book came out. You know, I guess like three weeks ago and I started writing it in 2016 and you know yeah very different time and um my editor (laughs) a very different time (laughs) my editor saw it my agent saw it and some of my friends saw it um but this wasn't you know so that kind of fucked with me because I'm so used I was so used to just that process of writing in public learning in public bouncing things off of people and now I just had to sit with this thing and like just let it marinate. And you know, it's kind of like, okay, if you microwave a dish 
and you fuck up the microwave dish, you can't really be that mad because it's you know it's a it's a microwave pizza, it's a you know it's some Stouffer's you know lasagna or whatever the fuck, and you're like you know what I could just buy another one, but if you are making it like a Thanksgiving turkey and you fuck that after you've cooked it for like eight hours and you're marinating it and you inject it with whatever hormones and sauces people <laughs> inject their turkeys with and you fuck that up. That's a whole different level of fuck up. Um, <laughs> and so I just, I was, I still am deeply anxious and nervous about that different higher level of fuck up because Right now, people are reading this shit that I've been writing and and sitting with it. And there's so much shit in there that is, like, vulnerable and transparent. And there's going to be motherfucking book clubs about some of the shit in there. And there's shit that I didn't even admit to, like, my, my wife. My, 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 admit is the wrong word. Um, because admit implies, like, a guilt. Um, things that I didn't share with my wife. My um, my dad, my closest friends, and now it's in this book, where people are going to critique it and and study it and like make notes on it and like screenshot it and tweet it and like that's that is fucking crazy yeah. that that that's happening. Like it's still like again, it's been out for three weeks now and it, and it's still it's still crazy to me. Yeah, um, and you're just. Absolutely, just again learning, learning out loud. My favorite book review was Panama's, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I think one of the biggest things he said was just like there was so much about you that he didn't know, mm-hmm. and he talks to you every single day, giving his ten, ten pitch, ten good pitches yeah. <laughs> to read your book. Yeah, um, it's. I mean, with some of the some of the shit that I put in there, I mean, people just weren't going to know because all right. So the the intro. If you just go three pages into the intro, I have a whole page about the relationship between prayer and masturbation. And that's not a thing that I'm just going to share with someone at lunch, you know, talking about like, you know. There are a lot of those moments. Yeah, talking about like the Warriors game. Oh, yeah, by the way, you know, that's that's just not going to happen there. I feel like I have to give more for people who haven't read it. Okay, so that <laughs> that it's in the intro about living while blacks in the extreme sport, and I talk about some anxieties or just what anxiety sometimes forces me to do. And you know, you get the urge to you know to run one out, which everyone does. Um, <laughs> and how I only do that on days that I've prayed because I feel like guilt about it somehow. <laughs> And I think that might be like the Catholic school in me where I feel like a little bit of like I'm spending all this time with myself and like I, I got to have a conversation with God beforehand. And and then sometimes the guilt gets so like overwhelming that this prayer goes from like a 30 second thing to like a 15 minute long I'm including the names of everyone I know who's ever died. I'm like, I'm like talking about like the first Aunt Viv. I'm like, I mean, I'm just just naming, just just listing things over and over again. And then by the time I'm done, I'm not in the mood anymore, and I just go to sleep. Tired. So. So what did you what did you how did you decide what to include and what to leave out then? Because you do include some very uh, intimacies, um, which I love, but. 
What? I, I I had I had some help in deciding, you know, what I wanted to put in there and what I you know didn't want to put in there. Um, because it's a two book deal, so I, I need to share. I need to save. Stop. Yeah, I need to save <laughs> some shit for book two. Um, so I I included what fit the story. Like I had a story that I wanted to tell, and so whatever fit the story was what I included in there. Um, and what story do you want to tell? Like, what is this book about? At um, I mean, it's it's about me. Um, and, and yeah, that it's. I feel like so much of the conversation, the national conversation about race, about racism, about blackness, deals with like these these opposite ends of the spectrum. Right where you you have this this focus on like this terrible trauma, which is necessary because it it exists, yeah. it's real, and we need to talk about it. We need to deal with it. And then you have this focus on like the excellence, like the talented tenth as Jack and Jill, you know, people who summer places where people who use summer as a verb summer <laughs> like those those sorts of niggas. Um, and I'm neither a I'm neither of those things. And so the book is just about, you know, what happens, I guess, in that middle. And the things that I decided to include, I guess, just fit the narrative, fit the story, um, fit the arc of um, just what I, of the story I want to tell. And so I'm, I'm actually like people have been asking me, you know. So what's book two going to be about? I have no fucking idea. I put so much in this. I don't have anything. Like I don't know where this is going. to, I don't know where book two is going to start. Um, I I I have no clue. So uh, I know we like to say that art creates culture and culture creates change. So what about your art are you hoping to push the needle on culturally? How do you hope your art will change? This dynamic that we're in now. Um, I mean, I hope it changes my life, where I could keep casting them checks. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <the most> immediate. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, I, I, the, I guess the. One of the things that I want people to get out of this is to just recognize the fallacy of performing. And and I think so much of, okay, for me, I'm this, you know, I was a star basketball player in high school, went to college on scholarship, you know, and there's like this expectation of who I was supposed to be, like this hyper, hyper hetero like ideal, super cool, super just, I hate the word swag, but I'm going to use it, super swagged out, you know, whatever. And that was never me. Um, But I performed. I pretended. You know, I would look at people who I believed had that, and I would just try to mimic them. Um, And that performance is that, that, that really fucks with us. Um, when you get obsessed with the performance and and then that performance that performance is also it also can be violent because um, that when you're performing and you don't really know yourself how can you have empathy for other people if you're not even empathetic to yourself your own if your own experience 
Um, and so I just, I don't know, I just want to, I just want people to stop performing. And I also want people, particularly like the 15-year-old me, the 12-year-old me, the 25-year-old me, to to read a book like this and read other similar sorts of work and just realize that whatever they're whatever they're experiencing it's it's not singular you're not alone you know and a negative byproduct of of that performance is that it induces like this claustrophobia where you can believe that you're the only one who's performing you're the only one who's feeling doubt you're the only one who feels fear or gets anxious or all or all of that and we know that's not true um and so i just i don't know i i just want i want us to feel less claustrophobic and and i know that there's always going to be a bit of that because of where we are because of america and america being what it is but I don't know. I, I think that being authentic, if the claustrophobia, if if you equate it to like this this big ass balloon or this partition or something that's just covering over us, then I think that authenticity, that vulnerability, and that honesty is a way of puncturing it. Thank you. Thank you. This is a beautiful conversation. Oh. Oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, that, that's it? This is it. Oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you for listening right. to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.